0: Um, well, I've gotten a few questions, and uh, thankful for those. And I have some that I would like to add to, but I also want to be able to interact with you all personally. Adam Bultel is over here with a microphone, and Bob is here as well. So uh, let me ask a couple that I have um, been given at the beginning, and um, uh, we'll just get these knock these out to get us started. One question that Steve was given given to me is talk about the The realization of Christ with us in this in this world. This is not heaven, but there's also an experience of Christ in this world that's 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 real. That gives us, um, you know, a little bit of the Ephesians one. There's a we've been given a pledge. We're not totally alone without Christ, right. and yet our faith is not sight. So bring that into. Um, living in a world without Jesus when he's actually here spiritually, how does that work out practically for, for a believer?
1: When he's here spiritually, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I, I mean, I think the way I would begin to um, answer that is to go back to the incarnation first uh, because uh, in the incarnation, he really did come in human flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a pretend thing. So that when Jesus was uh, lying in his cradle, he wasn't looking at his thumb and saying, "You know, I made this hinged thumb." You know, he he grew uh, because of the real incarnation. He grew like a real baby. There was a time when he didn't have vocabulary. When he time, when he learned to speak, learned language, learned to walk, and so on. It was it was the real real thing from the beginning. And I I say that because his. His experience in human life with, without sin was a real human experience. So that's the first thing. And, and not only that, when he <clears throat> died and was resurrected, he takes the human body of his experience with him. Doesn't mean he's always in that body, but that body was resurrected that, that he suffered in. It's glorified and perfected. <clears throat> And we're going to be like that. So, so uh, when we say we do not have a Christ who cannot uh, uh, feel with our infirmities, but he's tempted in all ways like as we, yet without sin, it's, it's an absolute truth that he understands us. So uh, that, that Christ, when you read, say, Romans, the eighth chapter, you have the Spirit making intercession for us, and then it says, with groanings that cannot be uttered, but he that knows the minds of the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. And it tells us later Christ is interceding for us. There's a dual intercession that is going on. So that, that uh, Christ's presence with us uh, is real through the Spirit. And he is present. He's, he's all present. But it's also graced and laced with the fact that he one time walked this earth in human form. So that's, that's kind of how I would answer that. Yeah,
0: Christ's human experience as a man yeah. gives us a paradigm for living in a world that's this side of the garden and not yet heaven. Right. So, good. Um, okay, a couple of questions. In fact, Thomas, can I put you on the spot? You had a great question. Bob, I'm gonna send you back, uh, which I thought was uh, exceptional, and uh, I may even use someone as an example based on his question.
1: My question was, how does glorifying God through our weakness and um, boasting in our weaknesses,
0: how does that relate to serving him with the blessings that he's given us um, and skills and talents? How, how do those things relate? Yeah, and we were talking about the fact that... Uh, Husky and Megan, are you in here somewhere? Yeah, we were using Megan as an example. She's an excellent cellist mm-hmm. so it's a strength right. it's a talent it's a gift but and which a lot of people have different dimensions of contextualize the strengths that we have and the talents that we have
1: while we're living and glorying in weakness yeah well i i don't know megan but i know this she's she, a very good cellist okay and, and uh and and i'm sure she's gifted musically but but the fact is it it wasn't her strength that got her to the level of where she is. It was her discipline that got her there. In other words, if she said, I'm just gifted. I can play a cello, uh, and I'm going to depend upon my strengths and my musical abilities, that wouldn't do it. It's got to be also submitting her weakness to discipline, so to speak. And I would say then, as a Christian to Christ... But I, I can give an example. For for instance, uh, if you're taking preaching, for example, uh, you can say that uh, a great preacher is someone who has the gift of communication. I think you can make the argument that you could be a very gifted communicator, and that could work against you as a preacher because you would depend upon your natural gifts instead upon God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are uh, people that will, uh, men that will go into the ministry who have all kinds of verbal gifts and they never become the preacher of the word that they ought to be because they depend upon their natural abilities, their quick-wittedness, their humor, their cleverness to communicate instead of digging down to the word of God. So there's, there's a sense in which uh, one of the qualifications for being a preacher of the word is to be aware of your own weakness and your own need. Is that is that helpful? Um, How do you
0: identify your weaknesses? I mean, I, I think we're always looking for strengths, and weaknesses should be in our face most of our lives. But when, <clears throat> if you're going to take Second Corinthians eleven or twelve nine and say, okay, find weakness A, B, or C. To seek God, uh, God's grace to meet you in. What, um, especially if you're living a, a life, you're paying the bills, getting up, going to work, coming home, you're not slapped in the face, face with all your weaknesses. How can we come into better contact and understanding of those?
1: I, I would say, uh, let, let me move from the pr- preacher thing to, to out because I can talk about my own life. I am uh, naturally shy. I would rather be in the back of the room listening instead in front of people. And when I, uh, when I first began to preach, I knew I was called to preach, and uh, I was married, a young married man. My wife would always sit outside of my range of vision because if I caught her eye, I'd get distracted. And I, I was so insecure in front of people that I had to write my announcements out. And if I got nervous, my my uh, cheek would start to twitch like this, you know. And, uh, and today people would say, no, you're just a natural. And I'd say, no, it's not that. I, I was called to do this and I came in my weakness and gave it to God. And so it's, it's not my cleverness. It's not my uh, natural ver- uh, verbal gifts. It's not my inclination it's because I submitted my weakness to God. And um, we all want to give our strengths. You know, God, uh, I'm, 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 I've got a strong athletic body, so I'm going to give my, my, uh, my strengths to you. Actually, yes, that, that can work if it's totally given to God. But if you're just going to depend upon that, God's not interested in that.
0: Other questions that you might have?
1: There they go. Bill. Paul's thorn. I know there's a lot of debate as to whether it was pre-conversion, post-conversion. Could you give us some context on your position? Well, it has to be post-conversion because it was given in consequence of his being transported to the the third heaven and into the paradise of God. So it was around the time of his missionary call after his conversion. So it was, it was as a Christian, it was post-conversion, and, and it was because of the experience that he was then given as a Christian of being caught up in the third heaven. So it, it's post, and uh, we don't know what it was. I mean, people have thought it could have been epilepsy, but the, the thing that it, it seems to be, it was loathsome and embarrassing to him, whatever it was. And he pleaded to have it taken away, and it never was taken away, um, unless, unless we think during the next decade it was, but at the time of writing 2 Corinthians, it wasn't taken away. And he had, that was about A.D. 54, 55, and he died around A.D. 64, 65 you know during the Neronian persecution so uh, I would assume that he went on that way and, and, and Paul talks about uh, his own weakness he says let no one you know in the end of Galatians despise me or discount me because I bear in my body the marks of Christ he's talking about a body that's been beaten to an inch of its existence
0: there's someone else over in here as well mike hoffman i am working with a lot of young men who
2: are training for ministry and know there's a school for ministry here when you're candidating for a position or you have a ministry that you're trying to garner support for from other agencies how do you glory in weakness but at the same time you're trying to put your best face or the best face of your ministry forward yeah. How do you think you strike that balance or, or communicate that, yes, what God has done in the past is still through my weakness?
1: Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't sit down with a committee and, uh, and play Uriah Heep. You know, I'm just an humble man. Uh, I'm just an humble man. You know, I'm just your servant uh, and uh, feign uh, false humility and that sort of thing. Uh, what, I, what I would bring to them is I know who I am as a sinner, saved by grace. You know, I I was just uh, reading uh, George Herbert this morning where he's talking about, he says, profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, you know, uh, the noise of passions ringing me for dead, you know, and uh, that sort of thing. I know what I am as a sinner. And I've been saved by grace. And so I come with a willingness to... To be used by God and to serve, but for me to sit down and say, "Well, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, uh, I have a superior Bible knowledge and uh, superior giftedness, and uh, I have a track record. Therefore, you know, I'm your best candidate." Is not quite the way I'd go about it. Um, I, uh, you know, the, the ministry is a serving occupation, and so it, it's going to be. Serve it. I've I've prepared myself. I, I've done the best I can do. I depend upon God. Um, that's how. I mean, that's what would appeal to me. Uh, if I if I'm looking for someone, I'm not looking for someone who thinks that they're really good. Uh, I don't know if I'm clear. What, what would you say, Rick? I mean, you do that kind of thing too. No, no, this,
0: you're, you're the, we're a Q&A with you today. All right. So <laughs> nice. But you need to balance
1: this, my friend. So, no, uh,
0: I, interviewing people before you, you I think it's in being honest with your gifts is not necessarily pride. Um, and just saying, look, this is the way the Lord's wired me and gifted me, and I, I'm, I'm trying to exercise those gifts, but I'm very aware of my temptations and my weaknesses, and it's, it's, there's a, you can, you can smell humidity, uh, uh, humility almost more than you can see it. You just kind of sense that this person is not self-promoting but aware of themselves and mm-hmm. in their strengths and, and weaknesses. And, uh,
1: uh, yeah, I, I, I would say if it was a youth pastor, and the, and the youth pastor says, I, I like kids. I enjoy being with them. I like teaching the Word. Um, I th- I, in fact, I think, I think God has gifted me. That's fine That's mm-hmm. fine to sure. say all those things, but it's just how, how those things are held, uh, what kind of spirit they're held with, and whether knowing those things means this, this particular individual is going to operate in his own strength or he's going to operate in dependence upon God. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you're a good golfer, you're a good golfer, but it's also because you spend a lot of time swinging a club, too, or a good musician I mean, you can you can know those things, but it's still it's it's how you see these these things, and and uh, you're not giving yourself as God's answer to uh, you know what the church needs. The the real truth is, the church doesn't need me, and the church doesn't need your pastor. It, 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 okay,
0: who said Amen to that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, what I mean is is that uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not. Michael is my thorn it. in the flesh. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. I we, agree with. We you, have Michael. a tendency to say, for instance, this person is so gifted that the church can't get along without him. That's not true. You know, and uh, and I think of. Of people that I would have thought were really indispensable at church, I think of a couple of pastors, that God took them away in their prime. I could see no human reason why, except God did it. And I would have said, no, he need to live 40 more years and continue on. But God took him in his prime. And so, uh, we, we need, all of us need to take our ministry, our, our care for others, super seriously, but don't take ourselves too seriously. I mean, if God can use Balaam's donkey, he can use anybody.
0: I see, is that, we got two on the side.
3: My name is Becca, and my question is, um, how do you discern when you're playing Uriah the Heat? when you are saying I'm going to go do this Bible study because God has called me to it and you are thinking that you are boasting in your weakness when really you're not does that make sense like how do you check your own motivation in any ministry calling
1: yeah well that is really a good question how do you know whether you're faking it (laughs) Um, you know uh, the humility and that sort of thing I, when you get my age, you start to know pretty well yourself. You know, um, uh, no, a, an affected, pretend humility is is sort of transparent. You know, when you're acting like you're humble and you're not. Um, and Becca, it's such a hard question, but I think it's it's your 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 transparency before God. I think it's always to keep who you are apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ right before you. And, um, and if, if God uses you to, to be filled with presumption and think, well, he used me this time. He's going to use me again is, is not, not the right thing. We, we need to know that we've got to be dependent upon him all the time. So I don't know if that's the perfect answer. That's kind of a hard question. And, uh, a good question. But that's, that's how I would answer that. Ricardo. What is it? Ricardo? Ricardo?
0: My question is uh, it's back to the
1: thorn. Um, would you say that uh, God allows thorns in our lives for the reason of humbling us that we have to depend on him? Because, you know, you say maybe he had epilepsy or Some said he might have been losing his eyesight. But necessarily, it doesn't have to be a physical ailment, but say something else that becomes a thorn in our life, that from our past or whatever, that he allows to be there to humble us so he can use us. I I, uh, actually, Ricardo, I think you're absolutely right. I I think if we... um... Talk about it being just a physical thing. We make a mistake. It can be, it can be, uh, an insecurity, and uh, and if if you give that insecurity to the Lord and look to Him, He can make you function despite your insecurity, you know. Or it may be shyness. Uh, it uh, it it may be uh, with some of us um, uh, intellectual. I mean, we, we, our minds all think differently. Some of us are, are real good at cognitive stuff, right? Um, and when I say cognitive, I mean you can do math, you can do science and do things like that, but the aesthetic side of you uh, doesn't necessarily work. And so, for instance, my son, uh, Kent, my namesake, um, he, can't, he cannot remember anything that he studied so he's, he's got a college education because he, could, he would do what was in front of him, but he can't remember anything he studied at uh, Columbia Bible College. And he's a house painter today, you know. But my son, has, has uh, he knows what his, his, his weaknesses are, and he lives with them, and he lives with dependence upon Christ. So uh, R. Kent Hughes, Jr., his old man's a preacher, and R. Kent Hughes Jr. works in the nursery on Sundays. And is a godly man, raising a godly family. And so he's come to terms with those things and, and gives it to God. And he's he looks you in the eye, he's a wonderful man. People love him. He's sought out. And we would say in our family, he's the most godly man in our family. Not his old man. You know, who's who's a talking head? No, I'm am very serious about what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> Thanks, Ricardo. Anybody? Okay, on this side, I see that.
3: Hi, my name is Ruth. I just have a question about your um, prayer life. Actually, how did uh, God cultivate an intimacy with Christ for you?
1: Okay, well that's that's Excellent a question. very personal thing. I remember J.I. Packer being asked that question. He'd always cop out, and he would say, I don't talk about my marital life, and I don't talk about my devotional life, but uh, I'm not going to cop out. What I'm going to say is this. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot said to my wife and myself personally years ago, she said, how's your prayer life? And then she said, my prayer life is the hardest thing that I do. That was quite a statement from Elizabeth Elliot who kind of, to me, is kind of, you know, up here as a spiritual uh, paragon, you know, a wife of uh, a martyr for the Lord and a writer of all those books and everything else. And uh, the one thing I've come to understand is that, is that uh, first of all, the, the text that I, I rested on is... Uh, Ephesians 6.18, which talks about being constantly making intercession with all kinds of prayer at all times, that you're to be praying all the time, that it's not just uh, when, for instance, I had a time of prayer this morning before I came, but it's, it's being in constant communion with the Lord. So, you know, as I have sat here talking, I've offered a prayer or two, trying to answer a question uh, I I prayed before I spoke and I oftentimes will offer a prayer under my breath when I'm preaching. Kind of living or you meet someone. So you, it's first of all living in in a, in a kind of a consistent attitude of prayer and communion with God. That's, that's one. The other thing is um, because my mind has a tendency to wander, I started using prayer lists very early on I mean this is a typical thing with Kent Hughes Uh, and even with my prayer list uh, I pray for my mother and then as I'm praying for my mother I'd remember our house the house I grew up in and then I would remember my 41 Ford uh, primered uh, said swing low sweet chariot on the side it was a hot rod and the next thing is I'm thinking about my Gold Flake steering wheel and I'm driving down to Huntington Beach number four with pomade in my hair. And, uh, and you know, that's 40 years after the event and I was praying for my mother. Do you know what I'm talking about? Your mind wandering goes off into other things. So I, I keep a prayer list and, I, and I, I put my finger on that list with my eyes wide open and pray for those things. And I have... I I carry a book with my Bible. I wish I'd have brought it this morning to show you, but it's my prayer list. It's a green book with a strap around it. I have all my children, all my grandchildren. I have about 30 preachers I pray for. I have all the events that are coming. I have certain churches that I pray for. I have the world that I pray for, and I go through it systematically because uh, I... My my mind gets scattered, so I, I'm saying it's living in in this in a, a sense of prayer and dependent prayer upon God. But it's also taking the time. Uh, I would also say just about my prayer life. I've I've learned that uh, I could say I do it every day at 5 a.m. But I've learned to say I'm going to have prayer sometime today. It may be that I'm up at 5 a.m. because I'm going to have breakfast with someone at 6:30, and I'm really can't do my prayer, but I'll catch it at lunch or I'll catch it after dinner. So I I don't think that there's a specific time to necessarily have prayer. Sometimes I go, in fact, with my list, some of it's too long to go through. I'll go through one part of my list like all the pastors on Saturday. Pray for them, like Rick, on Saturday. And then uh, I'll pray for my family all the way through. If you've got four children, 26 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren, you've got a lot of prayer right there. You've got a congregation. And so I'm kind of talking around it, but I'm saying that, that uh, it's, it's the kind of, you have to know who you are and discipline yourself according to it in order to have a prayer life, according to how your mind works, and so on. But I've got to have a list. That's how I do it.
0: There and then here.
1: Yes. I just wanted to follow up with that. How do you pray with your wife? You have a list of, of things you pray, and you mentioned the family. Uh huh. And, and, well, just, yeah, how, just explain how you pray with your wife. Okay, well, uh, first of all, I'd say you go through different stages of life. Uh, right now, I'm sort of like, I'm not retired because I'm off speaking about every other week, but I'm not pastoring uh, full-time like this. I mean, a pastor's time is just, it's hard to find the minutes. But with my wife, several things. One is, in praying for my wife, I, I, uh, I, I take... Ephesians 5, very seriously, when it says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I think about Christ, obviously, his incarnational relationship to us in the church. I think about his uh, high priestly prayer as a priest in Melchizedek that intercedes for his saints. And so I, I try to pray for my wife with that one flesh intimacy of loving her as your own body. So I, I want to try to understand her as best as possible. And I will say, after 52 years, she's still a mystery to me. Seriously. But I know her well enough to pray for what's on her heart, and I ask her for those things. Now, as far as praying with my wife, we try to pray when I'm town every day together. And uh, I usually will talk about, maybe I'll talk about my list... And I usually have her pray first. She prays whatever she wants to pray for, and then I bet cleanup on it, so to speak. You know, picking up the things she doesn't pray for. Uh, and there are certain things that are always urgent, that are always on, on your mind. A relationship, a grandchild, a, uh, an event that's coming, someone that's ill, a death, illness, um, all that sort of thing. So that's, that's how I pray with my wife. I've got my own list, but with her, it's, it's, ex, it's more extemporaneous. Maybe I'll review some things we need to pray for. I mean, we always have this list. I've got about six ill people that I pray for all the time. They're perpetually, they perpetually need prayer. You know, a woman fighting cancer for two years, or uh, another woman where her husband's been dying and not able to talk for the past two years. Those are always on my mind all the time. Do you pray with her to help your relationship with her? Or why can't you pray by yourself and she pray by herself? Well, I, I, do, pray by, I do pray by myself. And then I pray with her. But I don't, I don't have, it, it just depends on whether I'm going to have an extended time or a short time <clears throat> of prayer. It depends on what the day is. Uh, prayer is a very intimate thing. And so when you pray with your wife, it's naturally intimate because you're burying your soul before God. She's burying her soul before God. And so it naturally builds intimacy. But I, I, I do think to make a legalistic thing about it, we've got to have a half hour a day prayer together is not the way to approach it. You approach it like a relationship. I never feel guilty about missing a day in prayer. If, if life has been such that it doesn't happen, and it's not like I've got to play catch-up the next day, you know, I'm under grace. I have a relationship. So that, that's how it functions uh, with my wife.
0: On this side, uh, Adam, up in front.
2: Um, I'm not quite sure what my question is yet. I'm going to try to formulate it, and maybe you can pull it out of me. Um, <laughs> Uh, My wife and I are going into full-time ministry, and um, as you mentioned last night, one of the biggest things that seems to pop up with people in the clergy, in in ministry, is them uh, falling into sin, those people who for various reasons, various sins, not necessarily a specific one. One of my biggest fears is becoming that. uh, not saying that I'm anywhere close to that. Uh, we're just starting our ministry. And um, I was told at one point that the fallout of uh, a person falling in a ministry is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, depending on the person. Um, with that, you talk about being open and being, um, at least with your weakness. Paul was very open with his weakness. Um, while you're in ministry, um, I know that... Especially if you're a face to a church, if you're a face to a ministry, if you're, you know, every part of ministry is important. Whether you're up there preaching, if you're cleaning up, if you're stacking chairs, whatever. But those who are more up front have more of a reputation to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, because the fallout is can be much more if you're in full-time ministry.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Where's the balance in... Being open with your weaknesses, being an example to those um, who you're shepherding, those who you're leading, um, uh, either with your past, with your present. Because if, you, if you're saying, you guys need to be open with your weaknesses, you want them to come to you and say, okay, what are you struggling with? And you don't do the same, and you show yourself as a perfect minister, as a perfect person, when it's honestly not true. We all have our mistakes, mm-hmm. And you start saying, okay, I'm having struggles in this area, but if I say that up front, what are people going to think of me? Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you don't do that, there's no accountability for it. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I mean, we're going into uh, church planting. That's a very lonely field, uh, especially in a foreign mission field. You know, I'm going to be around a bunch of people who don't speak my language. Um, Hopefully, I will speak theirs eventually, but... um, um, that's just one of my biggest fears, and I've never really had a good answer to that. I've been open, you know, going through college and stuff with my peers and stuff, but you hit yourself, you know, you're going, you're going to be in full-time ministry. Mm-hmm. You say the wrong thing, you're done.
1: Yeah. Okay. I think I kind of got the gist of it. <laughs> um, here's the thing, is that, that uh, your, your character in the ministry is everything and your heart is everything but if you're standing in front of people uh, why you can be transparent about being a sinner let's just put it, let's just put it in terms let's say you're uh, let's say you're a man who had some bad thoughts not about your wife but about some other woman you know during the week it's not a time to stand in the pulpit and say I've had bad thoughts this past week folks pray for me I mean if you do that for a couple of weeks in a row you're going to be out of a job because, because there's, a, there's a level of transparency that where you know that you're a sinner you talk about being a sinner but you don't talk about the myriad of things that pass through your mind uh, you, you don't do that with people but and you kind of mentioned it I think that, a, that a, a young man especially needs another man that you can be absolutely transparent with because another man who understands the serpentine ways of a man's art. That's, that's what you need. And the man, in my estimation, if you're going to have that kind of candidness, cannot actually be, it cannot be an immature Christian or a beginning Christian. It needs to be a mature Christian so, you know, you have that opportunity with all the communication things today to have someone who really holds your feet to the fire. And I am, I am so uh, exercised about, and I'm, I'm really talking about sensuality and sin in the clergy today. It's a huge thing with me. I used to do this with my staff about twice a year, I'd sit, I'd sit with a staff and I would, I would say to each one around the room, are you, are, do you are, first of all, are you chaste and pure? Okay. And then the second thing I'd say, do you have a crush on someone or thoughts about someone that you ought not to, to have? And I'd ask them. And they would answer me. I mean, I've always got an answer well, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, there's nothing like that. I'd go around the room, and they'd say, each one would tell me that they were sexually chaste and pure. And then I'd say, let's pray. And then I would pray, Lord, if someone's lying to me this morning, take them home. You don't mean back to the apartment. I don't mean back to the yeah. apartment. Yeah. And I would say, because your reputation the church is far more important than their life. And I meant it. And, and, uh, and so, uh, we, we had that kind of a, you know, accountability that way. But I, th- I think you've got to have another, uh, you need a peer of your own sex to, to hold you accountable. And it has to be a mature Christian. Not someone who's going to ever talk about you or talk about the things you 're struggling with, but 'll really take you before the lord you 've got to have that kind of thing now i 'll tell you the, the the humorous thing of this i 'd done this for about five years, and, and I, I got done praying, and one of my staff looked at me and said, Now, what if you die next week? What are we going to think about you? <laughs> so they got me.
0: What about in, uh, building on that? What about in the pulpit? do you how often in, in your sermons do you say I struggle with this if you do that every week you have no credibility versus not ever saying it and then they think that either you're perfect or you think you're perfect
1: right um, I think I think I think that if you had a particular struggle with some sin whether it was materialism or your own vanity your own pride or you had lost it uh, one of the big things is, uh, is temper. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the kind of thing, not to be totally opaque, but it's to say, you know, I've been struggling with some uh, personal things in my own life, my own, my own s- struggle with, with sins, that I'm not going to talk about this morning, but I, I really need to ask you to pray for me. That's one thing. But I would say, if you do that five weeks in a row... They're going to go. This guy shouldn't be preaching, right. and maybe he shouldn't be if he's doing that. But, but this if is a, where if you've a... got elders uh, to be accountable to to talk about things um, about. You know, I I don't know what to say. But if you think that you're anything but a saved sinner, uh, you're self deluded. We're all sinners, mm-hmm. and uh, and. You know, uh, sensuality will send you to hell, but so will de- jealousy, and so will envy, and so will gossip. Um, so, you know, it, it's to confess your sins constantly, confess your sins, and repent. But don't you think
0: that as a as a next verse consecutive expositor, if you're if you're confessing something related to the verse five weeks in a row, then there's probably five different issues, but. You're going to happen upon text where you, you say, boy, this is a struggle for me, just like the next one Well, event.
1: yeah, if, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this just so you'll hear it. If you're preaching through, say, the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, you know, they be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you take each one of those things and say, I need to perfectly exemplify this in order to be able to preach it, you'd never preach. What you, what you have to say is, Lord, I I, I come as a, a poor sinner before you. I come as humble as spirit. I come to the foot of the cross. But, Lord, I know that I'm not as poverty-stricken in spirit as I ought to be, but, Lord, I desire it for myself. I'm sympathetic for it, and I'm sympathetic for it to my congregation. In other words, if you think you're a paragon of love and therefore you can preach, you've just made a big mistake. If you think that you're completely humble so you can preach on humility, uh, you make a big mistake because you just stepped over the line when you thought you were so humble. But you've got to desire it for your heart. And want it for your heart, and want it for your people, and be constantly asking God to make that truth real in your life, and repenting of your own sin. Okay, let me turn the key on that with that
0: issue in parenting. Yeah, that um, you're you're the authority. You're you want to exemplify a standard, Uh but your kids see that you're a sinner, right? And uh, confessing your sin to your children while giving them spiritual leadership in tandem.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I think that it, I mean, oftentimes your kids do something wrong you don't, you don't need to confess your sin when you discipline them, you know I mean, that sort of thing but, but if you're impatient if you, if you have been critical if you have uh, been overbearing you need to confess those things those sins in parenting say, you know, I, I, I felt like I lost... I believe I lost my temper with you, you know. doesn't excuse what you did. You did something wrong, and I'm going to discipline you, but I want you to know that I shouldn't have lost my temper, you know. It's, it's that kind of, of transparency. Just a few more
0: minutes. Uh, we're heavy on this side. Okay, there's two in the back there. Bob?
3: I'm just, I'm thinking in my head and <laughs> my heart, um... so paul was out killing people that believed in jesus and my question is do you think we the people of the church would have accepted him to to be a leader of our times coming from that place, or would we the people of the church, of would we would we say, with a past like that, you know, killing those that were following Jesus, you can't be a leader, so I'm grappling um, I'm grappling with the forgiveness. And the love and the humility that you speak of, of myself and the people of the church with one another and with our sins, like Paul, or, and maybe it wasn't a sin because I guess God knew he was, he believed what he was doing was right. I'm just, I'm, my question is is the forgiveness and would we let him lead now?
1: Sure. Well, I think, as you alluded to, when the Apostle Paul was breathing out murder against the church and holding the clothes of others when uh, Stephen was being stoned and all that sort of thing, it was as a, he was not a believer, he was not regenerate, he'd not met Christ. You know, he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and, and the words that Jesus gave to him, or it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he was persecuting the church and thereby thereby persecuting Jesus. So it was pre-conversion. He did it as a Pharisee uh, within the context of thinking that he was serving God, but it was was a huge religious sin, but it wasn't as a Christian. And then what happened is that uh, obviously Christ met him And Christ said, uh, he had Ananias tell him how many things he was going to suffer for the gospel. So he had the call to go suffer. And um, so Paul carried on. Well, his forgiveness is obvious that the New Testament church forgave him. There were probably people, disordered people within the church that always held it against Paul. But he was forgiven, and uh, we call him St. Paul, and he's called one of the holy ones, one of the Hagioi, because that is what he is in Christ. And so totally forgiven, ought to be forgiven by the body. And sins that are committed uh, beforehand, uh, I mean, those, if you're Paul's analogy, uh, those sins need to be forgiven, whatever the sins may are, whatever they are. My name's uh, Jerry, and there's been several references to the call, and I was wondering if you could elaborate maybe, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, and, um, you know, what it is, how to respond, uh, why, where, when, you know. A lot of questions about it, but just could
0: you elaborate about The call, call to ministry? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. You're talking about <clears throat> the call course, to ministry? And, of course, ministry
1: is, has many different faces. Okay. The, the call to ministry is what you're saying. That's, that's what the question's about. Uh, just to so quickly, I don't think that the call to ministry is <coughs> uniform. I think it happens in all kinds of ways. So, for instance, I told you what happened to me as a little boy when I was when I well a young man when I was thirteen years old, and I could I can uh, I've had somebody psychologically analyze it for me, which I don't buy. But what it was is my father died when I was four. There was this young World War II vet minister who ministered the gospel to me, shared the gospel. I identified with him. Therefore, I wanted to be a preacher. I say, okay, you can psychologize it, but the point is is that God used all of that to call me. And I was called when I was 13. But very few people in ministry are called when they're 13 and know that's what it is. But I had an associate who uh, was a captain in the Air Force, got out of the Air Force and thought, um, well, I don't have much to do. I think I'll go to seminary. So he went to seminary, seriously. Uh, and the first day in seminary, he thought, what am I doing here? Everybody's so weird here. But he stayed in it. He graduated from seminary. He still didn't know what he wanted to do. And the um, church that I was at looking for a youth, this is before I came, was looking for somebody to work with the kids and they hired him, and in the midst of doing it, he began to see that he was called mm-hmm. so you got you, you there is no uniform way that it happens, but what we need to do is be willing to serve in any way possible and uh i i i I do say hard things to people sometimes i um, I had a, a guy if you're in the medical profession I, I better not say it but uh, he's smart guy, love the Bible in our group wanted to be a medical doctor and I said to him, what are you w- going to waste your life for as a medical doctor? Why don't you save souls? Well if you're a medical doctor don't take offense, you know what I'm talking about but I said if you're the best and the brightest why don't you give yourself mm-hmm. to the ministry and he did and uh, he's pastoring with great effect in Oak Park, Illinois, today. So Praise God. Uh, So I kind of called him by challenging him. I don't know. All right, Megan, and then I think uh, we're,
0: our, our cellist had a question. So is, is it about uh, a musical score? <laughs> okay, good. Don't ask me. <laughs> don't ask me.
3: Dr. Hughes, last night you told the story of um, when you and your wife were j- church planners in the Los Angeles area in Orange County and um and you told about the trial that you went through and how the Lord used used your wife in her playing Bible roulette. Yeah. And um how would you where you are now in ministry and where the Lord has brought you, how would you now advise your younger self and your younger wife um, in that trial? Like, I, I doubt you would encourage somebody to play Bible roulette.
1: Yeah, well.
3: And so how would you advise them?
1: Well, first of all, I didn't advise her to do it. She did it when, <laughs> I, when her hero was in bed that night. And uh, she was uh, young and kind of felt like, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm so desperate, I'm going to do it. And um, hmm you know, that, that, that's the problem with sharing something like that. I said she'd never advise it, you know, But we probably can all look at, at things where events have come together and God has directed us in some way. And that happened that happened to her, but boy, to, I would never try it again. So I'm not really answering it. I'm just saying sometimes God does things that are just kind of out of the box. And that was it. She was uh, a young woman. I was a young man. and it's uh, a good question. Let's say that
0: you could talk to Barbara Hughes in that moment as, as you are now. What would you encourage her? And then what would you say to yourself if you woke yourself up that night?
1: Okay, well, the problem with me, the problem with me is that at time I was no help whatsoever to her. I was the one that had put her in that situation by all my miserable um, you know lamentations. Yeah, lamentations feeling sorry for myself so I suppose if I could step back from it but if I stepped back from it I would have been the man who said God is good and I'm going through a hard time and, uh, and God has called me and uh, I've got to think through this whole matter of success rather than Having to go th- through all of that in the providence of God, so uh, I don't know. I'd give her my book. I don't know what I'd do, but uh, uh, no, I
0: think that's that's the right
1: answer. That's why yeah. we're here. Is you're yeah. saying
0: yeah. evaluate your success by faithfulness, not results. That's what you would
1: right. I I, I had never thought about it biblically. And, and I was in that total church growth culture of, of uh, numbers, numbers, numbers. Everything's evaluated by numbers. And quite frankly, there are still denominational executives that, that do everything by numbers today
0: hmm.
1: in certain denominations that I know of because people come and talk to me about it. So um, it was something that was uh, uh, really that God gave me and I don't know yet of another book that addresses it that way I don't know anything that really thinks it through from a biblical point of view besides that so it was kind of groundbreaking and I think God just wanted to have it happen Um, okay I get the last
0: question because I've been waiting okay
1: yeah so you're preaching today
0: I'm thinking okay Paul gets this vision this, this enrapturement this experience yeah And he sees heaven, and God says, don't tell anybody. Yeah. And he's got, that was a decade and a half before. Right. Do you think, yet, fast forward the tape, John is on Patmos. He gives him a similar vision and says, write these letters and tell everybody. Yeah. Do you think it's because John was not in a position to be able to, being an exile, to to, make that a point of boasting? Or, well, compare those two, don't say anything, say everything you saw.
1: Yeah. Well, you got the prophets. You got the prophets in the Old Testament that are instructed to say all kinds of things mm-hmm. and reveal all kinds of visions from Ezekiel to Jeremiah, you know, to their uh, prophetic theater and everything okay. else. So uh, John, John is obviously doing a prophetic thing Mm -hmm. Uh, why God did not want the Apostle Paul to share that I'm not sure except that maybe that would have been all that was talked about maybe that would have been his ministry the thing that he did Mm -hmm. talk about was meeting Christ on the road to Damascus you can read about that about four times in the New Testament book of Acts he talked about, so he talked about that all the time, is, which is an ecstatic thing. I, I think meeting Christ, speaking to you, being blind, being taken by Ananias, you know, healed. I mean, that's just an incredible thing. And he told that over and over again about his conversion. But, but maybe it would have been that everybody would always want to hear, tell me about the heaven story. Uh, tell me, what did Jesus look like? What color were his eyes? That's uh, true. You know, that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. But that's a guess. He gives a great answer, and then he says, I don't know. So anyway, that's... Yeah, a... I don't know. All
0: right, we'll take, um, let's take about 10 minutes.